0: Thank you for downloading the Bristol Lectures podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Jacqueline DeRocas, CBE, President of Tech UK, President of Digital Leaders, and Co Chair at the Institute of Coding.
1: Well, thank you, Ben, and I'm delighted to be here with you virtually at the University of the West of England. Particularly delighted to hear about the success at the Foundry, which was a wonderful experience to open it. And also Alice's incredible story with Indus4, which brings us much needed innovation. And whilst the pandemic has obviously forced us to reconvene in this virtual setting, um, it is a testament to the power of digital innovation and how quickly we have adapted to this new way of living. That we're still able to have this event and continue to exchange thoughts and discussions, which really contribute to whatever comes next. COVID 19 has given us all, though, an intense experience of uncertainty, and nobody has enjoyed it. But that need not mean that we are left helpless or hopeless. We find ourselves today in a place demanding more of our creativity, ingenuity and our humanity than ever before. And many leaders are rising to that challenge today and more will follow, I'm sure. What's certain is that technology adoption is now not a choice. It's clearer than ever before that technology is a very powerful tool that can help people live and work successfully online. There is recognition across the country and the world that technology has helped us to respond and adapt to COVID-19. And it's now time to focus on how we can build on that momentum to recover and to thrive. By using technology with purpose, I believe we can build the future that we all need. And I'm passionate about diversity and inclusion in our sector mainly because for me technology brings the potential for balance because regardless of who you are where you're from or what resources you have access to technology has the potential to reduce barriers to entry both in the world of work and at home now having said that I have been reading recently, a lot of press, which implies we may have embarked on a what I call digital by default journey, instead of a digital first strategy. And this is quite worrying, a digital by default journey is at risk of leaning towards a digital only path. And that will result in exclusion for sure, and a widening of the digital divide. So whilst technology has the power to work as a great equalizer of inclusion and diversity, we must remember that there are currently over 17 million people in the UK workforce who don't have the essential digital skills required for work. And 22% of people lack the essential digital skills needed for life. But this issue is not only a result of the pandemic. The government had previously failed to achieve their targets set in their 2014 digital inclusion strategy, with the latest data showing that between 2017 and 19, targets were missed in every UK region, apart from in the southwest of England, where this area managed a fantastic 28% increase in people using the internet. And this is precisely why local interventions matter and can make the difference. It is said that the next 20 to 30 years will bring the largest technological innovations and developments that we have ever seen. And if that is the context, then we must do everything we can to ensure that the whole of society is included in this evolutionary path. Driving the nation's digital skills is not only a first step towards recovery, but also an opportunity to create competitive advantage on the world stage. Enabling people to gain the skills they and their employers need to succeed in the future will boost growth and will boost productivity. Everyone should have the skills and the confidence to make the most of the opportunities that digital technology brings. So as we look to recovery, it is crucial that we build the future we need. And equipping people with the right skills to thrive in a in a new future facing economy is absolutely critical. This means identifying the right skills, directing learners to the right places, right, right place for provision, and make sure that it works for them within their lifestyle because we can't all learn just when the courses are presented. We learn when we can fit it in. And ultimately we have to then pivot them back into the workforce. And this is more than ever, perhaps our biggest priority. COVID-19 has accelerated the process to become more digital. And getting the world online and connected almost overnight But in doing so, what it's done is it's also shut down quite a lot of other manual support routes. And with that in mind, we have to ensure that everyone has access to the same services and skills so that nobody is left behind. It is at the top of people's agendas though. Thankfully, companies, governments, charities have all acted swiftly to play their part during this time of crisis. And during the first lockdown, the Good Things Foundation helped over 10,000 people to cross the digital divide. And they did that by providing devices, by creating connectivity and help people to learn how to benefit from the internet. And they did this despite little to no promotion of this service. And they still have a waiting list of over 8,000 people needing devices. I also see that the Daily Mail is joining forces with our industry and tech, um, Computer Centre in particular, who are repurposing unused devices and getting them out to those who need them. So that's all really heartwarming. Initiatives like these and also ones like Future.Now, if you've heard of them, have also coordinated industry action and they also provided 1600 digital devices that help connect and protect vulnerable people all of these things help to narrow the divide and encourage engagement in our online society. I don't know about you, but I did think that this pandemic certainly had the potential to slow progress and keep the industry back, but instead, it has catapulted us forward and enabled most of us to come together. And there are impressive examples of progress from helping doctors with the early detection of diseases, supporting scientists grappling with climate change, Alice's example um, with her machine and the vaccines, bringing together diverse groups of people across the globe. Um, So, you know, we've got AI and machine learning technologies, all helping people and society to achieve remarkable things And I note from Ben that this speech is sponsored by the British Law Society. And since I chair the judging panel for the British Legal Technology Awards, let me tell you that the strides made in legal tech have been extraordinary. And they range anything from the use of machine learning to read and assimilate millions of documents that would take humans years and years to get through. And that enables court cases to take months instead of years, which is, nothing short of an extraordinary shift in our ability to serve up justice and even more innovative capabilities in the area of democratizing legal services and building in transparency into the judicial process which is also very welcome and probably a disruptive advance i'd encourage us all to embrace technological changes after all you can't uninvent them. But what you can do is keep pace and improve your own skills. There's no doubt, in my mind, that technology is forcing humans to confront their digital future, and that it will be our personal responsibility to learn alongside the newest tech and innovation developments, or at very least, be open to whatever comes next. So thinking then about the geography of where we are, the Southwest England priorities, if I look back to before March 2020, the UK government focused on three main themes. It was the levelling up agenda, the impact of automation and climate change. And these topics were at the centre of public and policy debate aiming to address regional disparities, achieving net zero emissions by 2050, and also the challenges of rapid automation. Due to the COVID-19 health crisis, many of these conversations had to unfortunately change in order to prioritise what we now know and call the recovery strategy. And as a result, The regional disparities that we see in the UK are at risk of getting worse, with low-income groups being particularly at high risk. There is likely to be huge pressure on regional assets, including local governments and universities and other educational establishments. And there is a real risk that COVID-19 is exacerbating the issues that are not new to the region in fact many businesses are falling behind and are failing to adapt and this in itself creates risk of wider divergence between those that keep adapting and those that aren't able to or choose not to adapt so you might ask yourself in that context what can be done well at tech uk we've been working with our industry partners hosting lots of regional digital conversations across the devolved nations and regions bringing together local business leaders and decision makers exactly to explore how digital capabilities and capacity can be better used alongside a renewed focus on local regional and national priorities and perspectives to help the economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, how to level up, how to deliver better outcomes for people, society, the economy, and of course, the planet. And whilst each devolved nation and region provided its own unique insights, there were actually a few common threads. The first was there was an overwhelming importance put on collaboration coordination and the creation of technology ecosystems to help grow the tech sector and to help grow the wider economy. And the second one, which I don't think will be a surprise, was the need to develop digital skills and provide multiple pathways into lifelong digital learning and growth. We also have seen some research conducted by Dassault Systems with TechClarity, and that shows that the pandemic has caused 38% of organizations globally to decrease their attention on environmental sustainability, whilst 18% put it on hold completely. However, it isn't all bad news, as nearly half of all organizations have increased their focus on digitization And let's not forget that digitisation itself can be a powerful tool in reducing the carbon footprint of companies and advancing climate action. And no more evident is this than in Bristol, which has embraced the digital and smart city technologies to support its vision to be a fair, healthy and sustainable city. It's certainly embracing digital solutions and harnessing the potential in delivering sustainable outcomes, whilst also mindful of responsible deployment. So that's really exciting for this region. But on workforce transformation, and this is about us, the people, all employed across the country, the 2020s was always going to be the decade of digital innovation but the global pandemic has accelerated this at an unprecedented rate. The combination of recent events have changed our outlook and priorities. COVID, of course, Black Lives Matter, deep recession, the rise of geopolitics. Our world has changed fundamentally and it has changed overnight. And as leaders, we need to adapt to new circumstances. Such Ambiguous and uncertain times require us to evolve fast, build smart partnerships, and drive this recovery agenda really hard. On top of everything else, we also stand at the start of the fourth industrial revolution, and this dramatically changes the way we live and the way we work. As more sectors adopt digital technologies and tools, the digital economy has simply become the economy. And we are going to have to really reflect on whether our social policies enable an economy in a digital context that is inclusive of all. Leading with people first thinking enabled by technology ensures that we don't deepen that digital divide whilst we adjust to the new world. We must remember that ensuring diversity and inclusion are firmly at the top of our agenda is more essential than ever if we want to recover as quickly as possible from the challenges brought about by COVID-19 and other factors. And we will need to do this so that the normal we find ourselves in is the one where we have made conscious choices about the way forward. But if tech is going to be the arrowhead behind which we power up the economy, the UK's digital education and training must be more closely aligned to industry and societal needs. Of course, the fourth industrial revolution has many unknowns, one of which, of course, is that we are faced with the task of preparing for jobs that don't yet exist, and we prepare by ensuring that everyone, no matter their age, gender, ethnicity, background, nor skill level, is given the opportunity to gain the skills needed to thrive in the future workforce and society. It is time for businesses, for us all, to get ready for a gear change in driving skills across the UK workforce, given that 90% of all jobs Will have a digital element to them it is clear that lifelong learning really matters and to drive this change there needs to be a cultural shift we must engage an ever-changing workforce by transforming attitudes to learning across the whole of our lifetime and realizing the critical nature and value of constantly refreshing our personal skill set. The historian and philosopher Yuval Noah Harari reminds us that it is not the rise of the robots that we should fear, but rather how we reskill ourselves every 10 years or less. So, how do we adapt to our digital future then? Well, businesses are already preparing their employees. But we do also need to align the education curriculum to ensure that we match industry needs with the outturn of talent from the classroom. The tech industry is engaged in retraining, apprenticeships, and the upcoming adoption of T levels so that we reduce the impact of automation on workers in the short term. And this proactive approach gives both businesses and their pipeline of talent, the skills and infrastructure that they need to participate in the workforce of today and of tomorrow. Now, as you might expect, I am a technology optimist, and I believe new technologies such as automation can be hugely positive, allowing workers to be much more created and have better work-life balance, flexible working, and people's relationships with organizations are going to become much more fluid than before. The numbers of contractors and freelancers, portfolio workers are all increasing. Identifying where and how to engage this flexible and diverse talent will become increasingly more important as a leadership skill. And skills and education are fundamental if we are to take advantage of these opportunities. And it's not only about hiring in new talent with these new skills, it's also about upskilling those already in the workforce and enabling them to prepare for jobs that aren't yet here. Based on the key learning of the lived experience of this crisis, I think we can safely say there's going to be more investment and more emphasis on digital transformation as organizations look not only to survive, but also to thrive, and this will need the support of new operating models and collaboration tools, but perhaps most importantly, require new skills. Let's be clear, as I mentioned before, we can't uninvent technology, so it's not going away, but we can harness it for good, manage the ethical challenges, and leverage the opportunities for all of society We all need new skills, but with that, a willingness to adapt and to continue to keep pace with change. There's no doubt that technology is forcing us as humans to confront this digital future. And as I said, it is our personal responsibility to make a commitment to lifelong learning and a belief that skills really matter. So heavily affected by the current pandemic are the humans, is the workforce, and it begs the question, what are the future work trends? Key workers, for example, pre-pandemic, are not the same key workers as before, as we see cleaners and frontline health workers, teachers rise to the top of the priority list, along with delivery drivers and engineers, all keeping the economy flowing and society functioning and during this period of uncertainty firms have been preoccupied with the question of what comes next for the future of work and previously this would have involved identifying key disruptors the implications on workforce transformation and especially the debate that was raging around workplace flexibility. Should I let my people work at home or do I insist they come into the office? But overnight, that question of workplace flexibility has moved from if to how and accelerated new platforms that we're all very familiar with, like Zoom and Teams, Google Hangout. All of us have had to learn new skills in online accessibility and engagement. And not only for work, but for education and also for social connection. Even my 80 year old stepfather who sadly passed away recently learned how to video call me from a smart tablet so that he could call whenever he wanted. So digitization has provided that much needed lifeline during this time of lockdown. So the question mark hanging over the future of work is how organizations are going to show up for their people, for their customers and for society as a whole. And it's going to be a tangible indicator of how their brand and their reputation is perceived as we choose to recover. Those that have invested in upskilling will likely attract and retain much more of that much coveted talent pool. And this in itself will build significant competitive advantage. Leaders will not unlearn what they have learnt this past year. They have found they can be more productive and that automation can, for example, help us stand up call centres overnight to deal with unexpected and unprecedented demand, such as was needed by the airlines and the insurance companies and government agencies. And in the health industry, their appetite for protecting their workforce by administering medicines and testing with the use of machines and robotics, has grown and will grow exponentially. So this sudden and wholesale shift towards digital and transformation is global and offers the opportunity for us to evolve economically and as a society. However, this is predicated on the assumption that we build a world that works for everybody and that we leave nobody behind. We know that in order to thrive, the technology industry needs to be reflective of the society it serves. We know that bright ideas come from diverse thinking and experiences from people from all walks of life. Widening access is critical to enabling the next generation to thrive in an increasingly digital economy. And as a leader, you will be remembered for how you behaved during the pandemic and how you emerged with renewed importance on skills, particularly adaptability and human compassion and empathy. Every day, thousands of new people are living online and working online, or at the very least with some kind of future digital dependency. Yet, it may surprise you to know that 12% of the population still lack the digital literacy skills to benefit from this trend. And those left behind by our digital by default strategy will be unable to participate in learning, working and accessing government services. Businesses are crying out for the digital skills shortfall to be taken seriously and it is estimated that by 2022, 1.2 million new technical and digitally skilled people will be needed to fill the gaps in the job market. Within a few years, 90% of all jobs will require an element of digital skills. And yet business leaders tell me that many people, especially young people, start work without the necessary experience needed to make a smooth transition. They tell me the skills crisis will continue to cause serious problems, which is why upskilling current and future workforce matters now more than ever. Compounding the skills gap is that the technology industry lacks diversity. 57% of the UK workforce is female, and yet only 17% are employed in tech roles. And it's not just gender that matters. All minority voices must be heard. Gender, of course, but neurodiversity, ethnicity, and LGBTQ, to name but a few. And I guess you might ask, why does diversity matter? Well, I'm gonna offer you three reasons. First, because equality is, of course, a noble cause, whom amongst us does not believe inequality of opportunity for everybody. And as someone from Chinese heritage, I feel this keenly as we watch the world demand a level playing field for all. And if that wasn't enough, the second reason why diversity matters is because it's proven that diverse teams simply make better business decisions 87% of the time We've already talked about the fact that great ideas are not the preserve of the higher ups. And fun fact, one woman on the board of a business can in fact reduce the risk of bankruptcy by 20%, just saying. Finally, the third reason, and perhaps most importantly, on top of my mind, is that whilst AI and machine learning can lead to positive outcomes most of the time, they can equally lead to unintended consequences. Witness the doctor who couldn't access the locker room at the gym because the swipe card wouldn't work, wouldn't activate the lock. And after several attempts to unlock the door, the techies were called in. And after they tried swapping the card out a few times, they looked at the code and they noticed that the job title doctor had been hard-coded as a male job title, and that's why she couldn't gain access to the locker room. This is a small example of bias, but it is endemic. And if you extrapolated that to the airline industry, for example, and hard-coded pilot as a male job title, the consequences could actually be quite devastating. And let's face it, once bias is in our systems, it becomes exponentially more endemic. So if decisions are increasingly made by algorithms, which decide now whether you get that job interview, that place at university or that loan, or even that investment, we had better make sure that the teams that design, build and test them are diverse. Otherwise, we are in danger of creating a digital future that does not work for everyone. Our lives are more dependent on technology than ever before. And most importantly, machines and software learn from their environments. So the data that they learn from must be representative of the community that it serves. And I'll say it again, let's face it, if we are to thrive in a digital future, which includes everybody, we must all ensure that we have all of our voices heard when it comes to creating it. And if we don't, we risk creating a world which continues to perpetuate bias and does not reflect the market that we serve. I do believe that the companies that will thrive are the ones that embrace diversity most. They are the ones that are building competitive advantage. In the words of Dame Wendy Hall though, who is an artificial intelligence guru, she says, if it's not diverse, it's simply not ethical. And if you're thinking that diversity is not your area of expertise or not your problem to solve, then think about this. Perhaps the greatest threat to diversity is the belief that someone else will fix it. So every tiny shift you make in your own behavior to be more tolerant and more inclusive when faced with someone who works differently, eats differently, looks different to you, or comes from a different culture, The way you choose to participate is by demonstrating some elasticity in your own tolerance and perhaps by checking your own privilege. Try walking a mile in someone else's shoes and see if that changes your perspective. These micro acts of tolerance all lead to exponentially better outcomes for an inclusive future. And I truly believe that culture is defined by the worst behavior that it tolerates. In closing then, as tech becomes increasingly influential in our lives, we must ensure we create a world that works for everyone. Diversity and inclusion are essential to those that write our digital future because we can only thrive if all of our voices represented. Digital exclusion is becoming a critical issue in our society, as millions of people lack the essential digital skills that have become vital in day-to-day work and life online. It's key that everyone, regardless of their age, gender, ethnicity, background, or skill levels, is given the opportunity to learn digital skills and thrive in a digital workforce and our society. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Jacqueline, uh, for that powerful and future facing address. Uh, and also the timely reminder uh, that we must continue to challenge ourselves on what digital inclusion means and and why diversity matters, especially given the risks you talked of a digital by default strategy as a, as a fellow tech optimist i think while your examples of bias certainly left a lump in my throat and in the pit of my stomach it was heartening to hear the positive reinforcement of values you are certainly committed to and the need for a, a greater shift you know culturally towards non-linear lifelong learning and the need for more flexible digital skills pathways um, But uh, yeah, so moving things on uh, for now, we're going to take the next 20 or 30 minutes to uh, answer some of the questions that have been coming in. Uh, Just a quick uh, admin announcement. If you've not already posted a question, there's still time to submit yours. Uh, You can do so by switching from uh, the window out of full screen into the standard view. Okay, so let's uh, take a look at the panel here and see what we've got. Okay, uh, Sue Turner asks, uh, very many young women still say tech isn't for me, and they are not opening themselves up to tech education or careers very early on. How can we smash this barrier?
1: Yeah, I think there's a number of ways we can do that. One of the ways is 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 how we all talk about the tech industry. I don't know about you, but um, we wall ourselves up behind three-letter acronyms, and we, we sound very scientific and engineering and, you know, I think we have to make sure that we are much more open and choose our language carefully so that, you know, software engineer, we could reframe that as problem solver. Um, You know, and I I think it really is important that we start to do that. And also that we've got some role models um, that they can see. I work closely with the Girl Guiding Association as an example, and we have STEM badges, which, start with for example consent online and go right up to ai and robotics and it's so exciting that this is where girls find it safe to look at um, stem subjects and it's fun rather than something that you know they're the only girl in the class uh, and everyone else is boys. so i think we have to find forum uh, for these young girls where they can get excited about technology. And we we are outcome related in the way that we talk about it. And by the way, in technology, it's not just tech jobs. We've got marketing jobs too. We've got all sorts of jobs that um, anyone can do. So I, I think we should widen our language when we talk about that.
0: Completely agree there. I think we've also started to witness a shift in the ways in which we're seeing uh, school-age children, girls, engaging with technology projects that, that are, are being developed in our outreach activity.
1: I think, okay, and Andy, if I, if I, sorry. If sorry. If I yeah, just add on. something, like as well, you know, just there are really important influences in our kids' lives. Teachers, of course, but also the big influences are parents and guardians at home, and you know, we are the ones that are doing things like saying, you know buy the pink T-shirt, not the blue T-shirt. The, the blue T-shirt, you know, I saw one in mother care which had blue T-shirt with G- genius written on it. And the, the actually it wasn't pink, it was yellow, but it was the girls one. And it said, make the world a prettier place. So we also have a duty to make sure that we are stamping that stuff out and creating some equality in our own narrative with our kids too.
0: I agree totally. Um... I think, yeah, there's nothing really I can more to say to that. It's powerful and insightful. Thank you. Um, How critical, Catherine Hobbs asked this question, uh, how critical do you think diversity within the digital innovation workforce is in order to ensure that we deliver an inclusive digital environment for everyone?
1: Well, I I mean, I think it's super important. Um, And, you know, the reason I'm passionate about it is that when I say that diverse teams make better business decisions. What they also do is they widen options because we think differently. Um, You know, if you take the examples of under pressure, some companies lock themselves in a small room with a very small group of people and become very command and control. You know, that's not the way you're going to widen your opportunities. The best ideas in a business do not come from the people at the top necessarily. They come from everybody across the organization. And if you are, if you've learned anything from lockdown, one of the questions you have to ask yourself as a leader is: where do my best ideas come from? You know, my a very good good um, friend and colleague of mine, Margaret Heffernan, taught me that. She said, ask your leaders where do their best ideas come from? And actually, if it's from themselves and two others that look and think like them, then probably you're in the wrong place. But if you broaden your um, thinking and you diversify the groups where you ask your questions, you are much more likely to be looking outwards and not inwards, and that's how you will grow competitive advantage. So, yeah, I think it's super important. Diversity is the answer to every single question you're going to ask me.
0: Thanks, probably. Jacqueline, and thank you for. Yeah, thank you for that question, Catherine. Uh, this one's from anonymous, um, but it's highly rated, so we'll go with this one. How should universities teach the right skills to students so that they are prepared for joining a digital workforce?
1: Yeah, well, um, as the co-chair of the Institute of Coding, which um, you know is, is uh, led out of the University of Bath, and you know, one of the things that we've done is joined academia and industry together and when you do that you create um clear pathways for the curriculum to be aligned with what industry needs so i think that's the real way that you do it is you create that bridge to industry so that there isn't that um let me learn something i'm never going to use thing and you know it's really important that we teach curiosity we teach generosity but also that we teach the skills that industry absolutely needs as we walk forward so i would say alignment with industry is probably my number one
0: yeah i just to, to support that fully i think that bridge to industry is what we've tried to build on here at Uue with, with the foundry that notion of yeah. experimentation failing forward you know uh, freedom to experiment the agency to take decisions um, and that notion of uh not entrepreneurship that risk-taking and, and problem-solving mindset so so yeah completely agree there um so yeah uh, moving on um let's just check uh tara asks how do we encourage a more diverse group of candidates to apply for roles in technology
1: yeah it's a really big one isn't it because we all think we're doing the right thing i think again um words are powerful i don't know about you but when When hiring people, I was as guilty as anybody. The job descriptions I paid very little attention to, and I have learned in later life that that's probably one of my biggest business mistakes ever. So, looking at the language that you use when asking for candidates to apply is really important. You know, as I said during my speech, walk a mile in someone else's shoes that you want to apply for your role. And if you walk in the shoes of someone, you might, you might just think about different types of languages. As I said, you know, problem solving is a much better way of thinking about software engineers. And also, you know, just use language which is inclusive, not exclusive. You know, if you ask for 10 years experience, then, you know, that's going to be tricky. But if you ask for someone who's got problem solving capabilities or has um, curiosity as a as a key capability, collaborates well. Um, you know, is good at delivering. I think those those skills are so are the skills that you know are much harder to teach actually. And you can teach them all the hard skills, but the soft skills. I would, you know, I definitely would would consider interviewing for behaviors rather than for skills as a, as a number one priority so i would i would go there and i would definitely change the uh, briefs that you're putting out there and job descriptions i think that's
0: really an important reminder um, uh- you know, the language you use, especially as so much of what we do is applied and is skills based, we, we might be inclined to to sort of leave those bits out in, in the kind of rush of getting an application out. So I think that's really, really sort of powerful reminder there. Thank you. Uh, Anonymous asks here, there's, there's definitely a few in the, in the list of questions that I'd like to try and jump to, but more keep coming in. But here we go. Um, Anonymous asks, how has virtual working changed the diversity challenges that society faces?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? So what well, part of me says that Zoom and Teams and Google Hangouts are almost the great equalizer because you can stick your hand up and you can say what you like and no one can interrupt you. Um, so I, I guess there's, there's that part of it. But I, I worry about the other part of it, which is people don't always have access to a quiet space or the tech or you know they might be having to traipse up a hill half a mile away to get signal. So you know I do worry about the infrastructure and access to technology. So I think once there, technology can be the great equalizer. But I am very mindful that it is a privilege to have a space and access to tech, and the internet is not yet you know a utility, uh, and it's going to have to be, isn't it?
0: Yeah, um, I think I'm probably as guilty as the the next technologist who when lockdown first happened, I took a lot of my teaching into VR even, you know, I could see body language, it wasn't just face to face video all the time, but very quickly realised that this was, you know, we're so far from this stuff becoming standard in this kind of gold rush, like push for technology, you know, and just how much everyone needed to be brought up to that. So certainly share those, those concerns. Um, moving sort of sideways to another sort of powerful concern at the moment, um, Nell asks, "What about sustainability when talking about digital inclusion? The digital divide in rural areas is an important social issue."
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Do we going to add something there, Andy?
0: No. 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 Go on. Uh,
1: yeah. So. Um, I, yeah. I know. I, I think it touches on the earlier answer, which is you know we have to even out. Um, the access to broadband for everybody at speeds that um, we all need to operate at. You know, we need to be able to, if we're gonna power up the economy and power up the society, we need people to be able to start a business, uh, you know, in remote and rural areas as much as we do in the the middle of Bristol um, or London. So, hashtag not just cities, I would say, we need to equalize the playing field and you know, frankly, society and the economy will demand it, otherwise we will continue to have this divide between the haves and have nots, and it's only going to grow unless we solve that issue. So I do think that's a, probably one of the biggest ones uh, at the foot of the government agenda in terms of infrastructure.
0: Agree totally, especially uh, currently situated in darkest Somerset on a very poor internet connection. So uh, yeah, no, I, I agree totally there as well. And we've got a I few more. A uh, one, go a on.
1: one as well um, is that you know this country has you know sixty six percent of all jobs come from small businesses. We are a nation of corner shops, um, to coin a, a cliche. And I'm, I'm, the reason I say that is because. A lot of the policies and decisions are designed to solve issues for the large businesses and large companies. And we must not forget the small entrepreneurial SME type businesses where most of our jobs come from. So I think that is a super important point and a great question, actually, about you know not just cities and not just the large companies.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. We've got um, a few, one that I was hoping that might pop up to the list, uh, and it is here now. It's from another anonymous, but I, I, I the, the phrase humanity is not lost stuck out from the text scrolling across my screen. So, uh, yeah, here's the question in full. Leaders need to lead, manage and create culture remotely. What can leaders do to create a remote culture, ensuring that humanity is not lost?
1: Yeah, well, it, it's it's a very difficult one to do it remotely. I do I do understand that, but you know, we often in businesses don't see the people at the top of the businesses in person um, very much, and I think quite a lot of their world is actually connecting through um, cyberspace, shall we say? But I think the way they do it is by demonstrating uh, their own values and their own, and living their values through the culture and the business. I think one of the things I said is that cultures are defined by the worst behaviors that they tolerate. And if the leadership behaves, leads by example and is inclusive and honors the diversity agenda and puts that at the heart of of their business values and their business priorities, then that's how leaders can start to um, lead by doing And it's their behaviors that will reflect right down the rest of the organization so i think we just need to see them demonstrating that commitment to diversity and inclusion and you know i i am a great believer that diversity is not something that you do it's something that you are and um that's how i have measured great leaders in the past is by their own behaviors
0: Yeah, I I think coming from the the kind of the top level of an organization, that's powerful. I think something very, very minor at the other end that that I've tried to help uh, some local businesses with is to with all of the change that's gone on to not lose the activities that foster the positive values that you talk about. So, you know, it can be, you know, out there from Zoom gaming sessions, you know, all the way, but to try to find a, a digital equivalent for what used to happen and not wait for the next thing to come along.
1: Yeah, and and you know, it's more it's the small things, isn't it? It's like acknowledgement is one of the things that you know is so powerful in in retaining talent. You know, I went on a a, a ten day hostage negotiation course in France, and the the two things that came out of this course was um, that humans need to be heard and they need to feel significant. This is how you motivate inspire uh, retain talent is by making sure that they feel heard and they feel significant and if leaders can create the space for that to happen then i believe whether you're doing it across a zoom call a phone call um, or you you know you write a letter these moments of acknowledgement are the moments that are pivotal in people's decisions to stay with you and stay motivated and inspired
0: I agree totally. I think that that ability to be heard is incredibly significant. Okay, uh, we've still got another few questions. We are two minutes from the official uh, end time. Are you okay to run on for another sort of 10 minutes or so? Jacqueline? Okay, we'll we'll go through it, see if we can clear the list. That's the the game designer in me. Um, So, top questions. Uh, Another one from anonymous here with eight likes. In terms of simple acts of inclusivity, what would be your recommended top three? Things that we should just adopt as the norm, uh, e.g. closed captioning slash signing events. But yeah, so what would your top recommended three be as simple acts of inclusivity?
1: Yeah, so and I I think these are, these don't have to be big things. So when I'm in a meeting where there is a lot of group think, shall we say, or even group look, um, I think the question that we all can validly ask is, where are the others? You know, because it's really important that we don't make decisions without a diverse group of people there. Now, I, I know that diversity is so broad and that you probably can't have everybody represented there, but you can have some minority voices there. And I would just ask the question, where are the others? So that would be my top tip. My second one would be that, you know, I choose not to be an angry feminist but i do wake up every morning and i care about diversity and inclusion and you know i i tend to use if i come up against a difficult situation where there's some misogyny or something like that then i probably use humor to diffuse it and i'll give you an example i was on a um a helicopter actually with some clients and one of the salespeople. Turned to his client and said, "Would you like to meet the managing director?" And he said, "Oh, I'd love to meet him." And then he turned around and he said, "Oh my God, you're a woman!" And I said, "Oh my God, I didn't realise I needed a <clears throat> penis to make a decision." Um, but let's discuss it over lunch. And so, you know, what was really interesting about that was we became friends, and for twenty years, you know, this this client bought way too much software from me, I'm sure it was out of guilt. But actually, the point was, I chose not to waste my energy, um, being angry about it, I chose to deploy humor. And that seemed to work for me. Now, everyone has their own way of dealing with it. But that's sort of, you know, a couple of tips that I would say, would really help me through very difficult times in very male dominated industries.
0: Okay, uh, yeah, moving on to a question uh, from Russell this time. What advice would you give to empower work colleagues to take personal ownership for their lifelong learning journey?
1: Yeah, it's a really great question, isn't it? So I would stop the rot, which is that, wait for your boss to tell you, or for worse, for the machine to tell you, the system to tell you, um, you now need to complete XYZ training. Um, I would definitely plant a flag and say, this is where I want to be in three months' time or a year's time. And in order to do that, I need to understand what I'm going into. And I think it's about walking forward into something a little bit unknown, but actually to learn a new skill. That And it doesn't have to be Python coding or anything like that, but it might just be, you know, understanding how decision-making happens in in that environment or how, um, you know, you you might better um, remove some friction by learning this new sort of project management skill or something like that. I just think it's really useful to walk into something and learn a new skill every year. I, like I said, I did that hostage negotiation course. It wasn't a tech course. But what it was was something that improved my skill set as I've moved forward in the area of conflict resolution. And I can tell you there's quite a lot of that around the board tables. Um, But, you know, it is quite important that in a tech-paced world that we start to learn something that we're just a little bit uncomfortable with. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know, opening a social media account and just playing with it.
0: Yeah, I think there's something definitely to be said for that, a more kind of human approach, especially as an antidote to kind of big HR or algorithmic kind of compliance culture and KPIs, which it's so easy, especially working remotely to fall into just kind of alignment with. So, no, I think I think that's that's really powerful. And I'm going to sort of uh, think about that myself. Definitely. Uh, So, yeah, I've still got a few more questions to get through and we're still okay for time, about seven or so minutes left. So, uh, yeah, let's go with this one from Anonymous, which is high rated. How do you think government agencies and employers can work better together to eradicate digital exclusion?
1: Oh, my goodness. So I should be prime minister if I answer this well. Not that I have any aspirations um, to do so. Um, So actually, uh, I think that government agencies um the civil service actually is pretty good at diversity in terms of its value base i think the collaboration bit for me in government is the bit that's um tricky and i think it's because we have such complex structures and i was you know i was on a call this morning around how the masai and the mongolians Operate in their worlds. I know it's a world away from where we are, but actually, one of the the comments that came out of it was they simply can't afford the complexity. If survival is the name of the game, I think there's something to learn from that. Actually, Andy, you know that if survival is is where we're going, and then after that gate, it's how do we thrive? You know, I think we need to probably take a bit of a a hatchet knife to the complexity because surely it can't be that we need all of these layers of process and complexity in our agencies or in any business actually i think we are just addicted to a bit of complication and i would i would take a, a knife to that <laughs> I think we
0: all recognise that in any large organisation that there is process that exists, and people can't always remember why that that process might exist. And I think that that yeah. speaks to the earlier thing we talked about: entrepreneurship, that space to experiment or to push through. You know, not everyone is going to be an entrepreneur, but everyone can be an entrepreneur and can start to think about ways to get through that sort of thing. So, no, yeah. I think that, that that's really really fascinating, and I love the examples tonight. Um, you know, the Masai and the hostage training are very very. That does link to a question that. Um, Um, that uh, Muriel Macdonald asks, uh, who's chair of the IOD Southwest, uh, very stimulating talk, thank you. Can you share some other role models who would say something like, we couldn't have done this without this diverse team? Can you think of any other role models uh, for sort of uh, diversity?
1: in 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 tech or well let me just make the assumption so yeah i mean definitely um i look i definitely look at uh, microsoft who have it in spades i look at salesforce um who have it in spades and and also actually i would say um a, a colleague of mine sheila flavel at fdm where you know it's a big technology skills group and you know diversity is just at the heart of everything that we do and and also, you know, I would, I would just say that whoever doesn't operate in a diverse environment, you know, just look to those groups around you that do and ask yourself, do they do they actually turn out better business decisions? I think you'll probably find that they do. of the time, and that is so exciting. So if you you know look around for your own examples of diversity, and you'll think you know that's a bit of a quirky idea, and then you'll think, wow, actually, yeah, but that just might just might make the difference between just doing things in a straight line, which we you know we are addicted to sequential as well as complex. And you know there was a Gartner report actually which said, why don't people surface ideas? when it's blindingly obvious that this idea would solve most people's friction in an organization and the answer to it was gartner found in their research was that 80 percent of the people don't surface the blindingly obvious answer to the problem that most people suffer because they think someone else will have said it already and that's really shocking isn't it that we're all kind of in that herd mentality and i worry about that all the time so i'm constantly you know pinging out there for for ideas and think you know double checking have we got the best ideas because they don't come from where you think they're going to come from
0: i agree totally and i think that uh, you've given me a slightly indelicate segue to the next question that i'm going to ask you as well um Gartner, just for general relevance, is a, is a brilliant source of signposting to technology innovations, particularly with their hype cycle, when we're talking to students and working with them about what the current and emerging technologies are. Um, and that, that is my indelicate seg- segue to this question from Anonymous, which says, what would you say will be the biggest tech innovation we can expect in 2021 uh, and beyond in post Brexit and Covid UK? So yeah the biggest single tech innovation we can expect in 2021.
1: Yeah I, I don't know what that, I mean there are so many amazing things that are happening in quantum computing which will completely blow our minds for sure but I think the thing that um, I hope is going to come is um, the cyber security around the internet of things we've got so much stuff that's plugged in and Andy you've probably got a load of stuff on that desk in front of you you know, where where you think, well, okay, I hope we are securing this um, in a way that is, um, yeah, yeah, gonna protect the nation. So I guess where I I suppose I'm anxiety led on the security side, and I would say, I hope that the internet of things brings with it also innovations in cybersecurity that keeps us safe.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And actually you said that it was either gonna be a a justice cat meme that was going to be a talking point, or the other thing that's happened in, in the gaming sector today was one of the, the largest game studios in, in the world was hacked. Its entire source code has been released, and all the personal data, finance, and accounts of all of its employees are now public domain. So I think with this massive growth we're seeing in creative technologies and cybersecurity awareness, not just, I mean, IOT, but actually, I think the X point that was used was not on the main desktop. So I think, yeah, we need to be thinking about how everything is secured and also girl years charged read my desk um
1: yeah well and and this is actually why at the girl guides we start with security online personal security online how do i stay safe online so if you haven't done any of that research you know for anyone listening i would say learn how to stay safe online and, and actually learn how to stay safe personally because you'll take those um those learnings into the workplace and i think that's that's very very important for us as we move into a digital future
0: yeah, I agree. Um, it's seven forty now, so there's there's a couple I'd still like to get to, but let's let's go for one and see see where we get to. Uh, Jacqueline, to what extent do you think that the experience of digital homeschooling by school children will create a renewed passion for IT, or will it increase digital exclusion? Which which way do you think that that might go?
1: Well, um, I'm hoping that the strides we're taking will will include um most kids I, I mean I do love the fact that BBC2 have put some of their programs and lessons uh, on the television so that it doesn't actually have to be device dependent uh, in its entirety um but let's face it the pandemic has been awkward for all of us and we're going to have to find ways to catch up I think though it has highlighted that the 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 idea that a digital divide could grow is actually unacceptable and that it is incumbent on government and business and academia actually to make sure that we work together to eradicate any digital divide because it is now um, a must have not a nice to have so i would say that if anything it's a wake-up call to say let's let's make sure it doesn't happen and that's where we should invest
0: yeah, I agree totally. And I think we'll just squeeze one, one more, which is on a related note. Um, how do you think that the pandemic has affected the adoption of technology by older age groups who may have been previously excluded?
1: Oh, I know. Well, I think there have been some wonderful examples. You know, my stepfather, who died a couple of weeks ago, you know, he's got this, um, had this uh, tablet from a company called Tech Silver. And it's all about how older people can just you know, press my photo actually and call me whenever you like. Now that wasn't terribly helpful during my working day, but actually it did help us to stay connected and tech can be really easy. The the biggest problem was things like, you know, remembering to plug it in and stuff like that. So, um, I think it has really helped with older demographics where they have held, had help. But I think what it's also highlighted is that they can't all do it on their own and that we have to be responsible for helping people near us. Um, my next door neighbors in villages uh, around me, for example, you know, we all have to have community groups that, that help um, the elderly stay online and make sure that that demographic is included because it's so easy for them to become the invisible um, part of the society when we're all online. And, and that's uh, where I would say we have a part to play. We, we all personally have to make a decision to keep them included. And, and if you think we can't help everybody, I would just remind everyone of the Dalai Lama's quote, which says, you know, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito in the room and that every small act of kindness uh, really does matter.
0: Thank you, Jacqueline, for that and, and all of your insightful answers tonight. Um, your your thoughts uh, you know, will no doubt be resonating with many, I think. Um, but I do think, unfortunately, that's, that's all we've got time for and we'll have to wrap things up. Yeah, it's, it's later than I was told we could come to. So yeah, I'd like to thank all of our speakers, especially Jacqueline, uh, for an inspiring address that was also a powerful call to, to action. I'd like to thank you, the audience, for your questions uh, and also remind you that this and other talks from the series are made available online, so please do check them out. Uh, finally, from me, do reach out if you're interested in collaboration or a project with students. Do enjoy your evening. And on behalf of everyone at UWE Bristol, thank you for watching. For more information about the Bristol Lectures series, including other podcasts from the series, visit uwe.ac.uk forward slash Bristol Lectures or follow hashtag Bristol <laughs>